Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barthlow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. We're going to continue our series in Luke. If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 9. This is our series in Luke chapter 9 called Seeing Jesus Clearly. The whole passage, the whole reason in which we're in this series is to get a better understanding of who Jesus is. It's our custom in this church every fall to walk through one chapter of the book of Luke. We've already planned for next year. We're going to be doing Luke 10 and 11 in the fall. I'm excited for that. But we do one one chapter in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, written by the, the surgeon, the physician Luke. A, a, it's a gospel of, of detail and precision. And we do that so that every year we get a good old-fashioned chunk of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we pick up our passage today, our study today, in Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to read verse 27. It's the last sentence in the paragraph before. We're going to read 9, 27 through 36 in the series called Seeing Jesus Clearly. Luke 9, 27. It reads like this. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he, that's Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure. If you have a pen, underline departure. We're going to talk about that. And they came to talk about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Of course they were. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came, and it overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they, the three, kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The title of our message today, if you're taking notes, right at the top of your page, you can put this down. The title is this, Oh, You Should See Him From Here. Oh, you should see him from right here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and this time, this appointment that you've made for us. Speak loud today. Soften our hearts and our minds to receive from you. Open our ears to hear you, our eyes to perceive you. And remove me from this altogether, God. In spite of my weakness and my frailty, stand up big and strong in me. Speak through these lips of clay, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen. This week, my wife and I put up our Christmas decorations. Do I have anybody like that? Do I have any, do I have any real Christmas folks in the house? Some of y'all still got pumpkins on the front porch. Don't get me started. We love to get Christmas started on November 
first. Amen. Amen. Now, on the other side, we take our Christmas stuff down on December 26th. Amen. I'm not trying to mess around. But we put our stuff up this week, and I love it. I, I, I love it, but Chanel loves it way more. We put on Christmas music. We went to YouTube. We found one of those videos that's a fake log burning. Amen. And, and we start putting up our trees and, 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 and our decorations. And, and I like the process. I found out I'm more of a starter of things. I'm not a finisher. I have a high need for closure. And so when I bring up the stuff from the basement and get to work, I like to finish things and put them back into the, and then put them back into the basement. My wife is not so pressed for time when it comes for decorating. A couple hours in, I'm already fatigued. I've put up two trees. I've put up several wreaths. I've got the signs in the front yard. And my wife is one by one looking for the perfect place for this baby Jesus. And another place for this baby Jesus. We collect nutcrackers. I think we have about 9,000 nutcrackers. We don't eat nuts. But one of the things that I've noticed about us setting up lights is, and Christmas decorations is my wife and I both do the same thing. Once we've been in the mix, we've set it up and been right close to whatever it is that we're constructing, her and I both do this thing. We didn't teach it to each other. I never read about it in a book. I've never seen anybody else do it. It just came naturally for both her and I. We finish the job and then we, we take it all in. And then we walk back and we tweak a little something. Yes, yes. I can't figure out if I like the lights until I turn all the lights off. And then I'm like, yes, that's the glow I was looking for. And the reason that we're doing this is because we're, we're trying to get a full perspective of the situation. Yeah. Left to my own devices, I, I can create some pretty ungodly Christmas decorations. In fact, I began to set up our second tree. You heard it, second tree. And, and I missed a good chunk of the tree. We, we, we have fake trees, don't judge me, and it, they come in parts. And so I set up the base and then the bottom part, and I kept building it, and I finished, and I stepped back, and the tree was wide and short. And I stepped further back. Maybe I didn't understand the perspective, and it was still short. And my wife said, well, you need to see everything around you. And I realized I had a whole section of the tree unfolded and still on the ground. The reason that we do this, all of us do this, is because you and I both intrinsically know that if we only see a very limited portion of the view in front of us, we may not have all of the information necessary for us to do things well. Y'all with me? You do the same thing. You're going to set up your decorations, hopefully like me, very, very soon. And when you do, you'll step back to take it in to make sure that you have the best picture, the proper perspective. And that's actually what this whole passage of Scripture is about. It's about Jesus providing for his disciples a good, proper perspective of who he really is. Now, I read this scripture a million times in my life. There's a parallel of this scripture in Matthew. It's in, I think, Matthew 17. It's also in, in Mark 9. And, and I've read each one of them, and, and they all track pretty much the same. A couple nuances in conversation tone or tenor. Uh, Mark says that it's six days after the sayings. Luke here says it's eight days after the sayings. We believe that, that Luke places this moment of the transfiguration, though he doesn't use the term, eight days after this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, clearly so that he can place this moment 
during the Feast of Tabernacles, a Jewish high holy day in which practitioners of the faith would gather together, usually within the city compound, and they would build sukkots. These are small homes. They called them tabernacles. They're more like huts, and the huts wouldn't have a roof over the top. They were meant to be dwelling places within which the people could live during the high holy day without a roof to signify there was nothing separating them from them and God. It matters for this story because there's a moment here where Peter makes a mistake in his understanding of what's happening. And I've read this passage hundreds of times. And last week, when I began to study it, you know, the question that came just running through my mind was, what is the point of this? If we read the Bible the way we read the Bible, much of the teaching of Jesus is an invitation to a life lived in faith. When he returns and confronts the disciples, there are some who don't believe, and he encourages them to understand that it is faith that makes the difference, not sight. For we live by faith and not by sight. The Apostle Paul echoes the same sentiment that we are to live by faith, not being ruled just by what we see, but to live by what we know in our heart. Faith, this Greek word pistis, it means to be personal persuaded to believe, to constancy, to movement, to action, faith is in our feet. And if that's the teaching that's true throughout the New Testament, I land here and ask myself, what's the point of this? Why would Jesus choose to teach, don't just see it, believe it, and then pick three goofballs to see it? And the answer is in the question. He picked three goofballs to see it. That's the teaching. If you get nothing today, it's this. God loves outcasts. He's crazy for misfits. He knows full and well the troublemakers have the best testimonies. And he loves to show himself to people that never thought they'd get a chance to see him. That's why we have this story in three of the three synoptic gospels. Because whether it's Matthew writing to an entirely Jewish audience or Mark writing to an audience to understand the movement and the momentum of Jesus or Luke writing to an entirely Greek audience to show them the detail, every one of them agrees, oh man, Jesus is always showing himself to the most unlikely of people. Verse 28. It says, eight days after he was talking to them, remember, eight days after Peter had confessed that he was the Christ. Eight days after Jesus had, had illuminated for them his real mission, that he came to be betrayed, to suffer, and to die, to be rejected. Eight days after that, the Bible says that Jesus takes three men up onto a mountain. And here's the fun little pithy phrase that you can write if you're taking notes today, because I think it matters and it's important here. Uh, you're going to have to climb a little bit higher if you want to see a little bit further. Here's the truth of the matter is that if you want a better perspective, you're going to have to get a better platform, a different viewpoint. If you want to see more of Jesus, more of the world around you, if you want better understanding, you're going to have to get up there. 
And so Jesus grabs three. These three, who we'll talk about in just a second. Though we have 20 minutes left in the service, and I have 120 minutes left teaching. He grabs these three and he says, check it out. He says, it says, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up to the mountain, and they went to the prey. Here's what I love about this. It does not say Jesus said, if you want to, you guys can come with me. No, it says Jesus turns to the three. Peter, James, and John says, come on. It doesn't say they get details. There's no question. There's no information. It just says, come with me to pray. And I love this because he doesn't explain where he's going and he doesn't provide any details. He just implies, trust me. And I don't know how your walk with Jesus is going right now, but my walk is right here, right here, which is I sure could use some more details. I would love some more information. God, do you really want us to find our next home? Are we going to raise the money necessary to do this? What's happening with the building we own? Could you give me a little more information? And Jesus just says, come on. Now, where are we going? Shh. Come on. That's the way that Jesus works sometimes. Amen? He doesn't always give you the destination, does he? You know what he usually only gives you? The very next step. That's why he says walk by faith. Where are we going? Just right there. That's why the Bible says our steps are ordered. Why? Because he said just, just trust me. He's always inviting us to follow him like that, isn't he? Jesus is continually in the position to encourage us to trust him. And, and what he's doing when he's inviting us to trust him is he's inviting us to lean in, to climb higher, to go deeper. Here, here's what I want you to understand today. If you don't know Jesus like you want to know Jesus, remember we started our time together praying, God, give me a, a greater desire for you. Birth in me a thirst and a hunger for righteousness and the things of God. And if you don't yet have that, if you don't yet understand God in the fullness with which you desire, I want to tell you that the invitation from Jesus is to come after him, to draw near to him, to chase him. And here's the beautiful way that Jesus does this. He's always using the same formula. It never changes. He wants you to study deeper, pray more fervently, worship more truthfully, and surrender more greatly. These are the things in which Jesus is calling every believer to. Study, prayer, worship, surrender. And the good thing about Jesus is that he'll use your circumstances to achieve those things. When he wants you to study, he'll provide for a season of confusion. How many of you have ever been in a season of confusion? I don't know what's going on. He's like, perfect, we're in the great place. Open your Bible. I don't understand it. Open your Bible. I don't know what's going on. Open your Bible. Jesus is, is good, and he's sovereign, and he loves you. And he's willing to let hard seasons come in so that he can get your attention and remove from you what he needs to remove and get into you what he needs to get in. So he'll use confusion to get you to study. Amen. He'll also use pain to get you to pray. I have a pastor in my life who told me every moment you feel depressed, it's Jesus inviting you to pray. Every moment you feel anxious, it's Jesus inviting you to pray. Every moment you feel beat up and low and forgotten, it's Jesus saying, I'm ready to have a conversation, are you? He calls us to worship, worship in truth and spirit. And he does that through weakness, 
Pastor Ty shared a perfect testimony. Could have been in this text, in my notes today. The invitation was, I feel weak, you feel weak? Yeah, hey, let's worship him in spite of our weakness. For that's where we find all of the power and access to the throne. Paul himself echoed it. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And then God invites us to surrender to him, and he does that through challenge. All the beautiful ways in which God allows obstacles and issues and challenges to come into our life so that we might say, okay, fine, I quit. I surrender. You win. And Jesus invites these three boys to follow him up on the mountain, to surrender, to trust him, because he knows that if they'll just follow him, he's going to take them to a place where a better perspective about who he is will change who they are. Verse 29, it says this, and as he, that's Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Here's what I I want you to understand right now. There is always a better view of Jesus. Always. I know you might think from time to time that there is a level of like Christian faith after which there's no more revelation. You might see somebody on TV. You might meet somebody who's super holy. They're Christian, Christian, Christian. They say all the right things. Then they pray. It's awesome. They know Bible verses by heart. They can sing everything. They can do all three harmonies and they can invert it. You're like, how Christian are you? It's amazing. And you might think that they've attained like the final level of ninja Christianity, but there is no final level. There's always more to discover about Jesus. And the longer I walk with him, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, how come you didn't tell me about that before? He's like, oh, you would have have fallen apart if I showed you that. But I'm showing you now. And here's what happens. Jesus brings them up because he knows there's more of him for them to see. And what happens is he transforms in front of them. Now, I love this part because it's important that every one of us catch this. Jesus is praying. Jesus is both God, amen, and human. He's 100% deity and 100% humanity. Don't believe any doctrine or theology that tells you that Jesus shed his divinity so that he could be human. That never happened. He was always God and man. That's why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so in this moment, though he be totally sovereign and in totally controlled, he he can do anything and say anything. He has absolute mastery of the situation. What he chooses to do is pray. He chooses to be in commune and surrender with the Father, and in prayer is where Jesus changes. Now, I know you've heard that prayer changes things. I I know you've heard people say, you know, prayer can move mountains. Prayer, prayer, Prayer can turn mustard seed into miracles. And those things are 100% true. But prayer doesn't just change things. More importantly, prayer changes, say it, you. you. And who better to demonstrate this than Jesus, who, if we're being honest, because he's all God, needs no changing. Can we say this? 
He doesn't need to go, Father, change me. He doesn't need to change. He's perfect. And he says, Father, man. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, God, just make it clear to them. Just fix these 12. You assign them to me and they're not getting it. Make it so that they understand, or if you could make it a way that I don't have to do this, that'd be really great too. What if I just, what, what if I just became king now? He doesn't pray any of these things that might change the circumstance. He says, you can change me. And I think one of the reasons that most of us have trouble with our prayer life, we think our prayer life doesn't work. I'll just say it like this. The reason your prayer doesn't bear fruit is because you're asking God to fix things when he's desperate to fix so many of us are praying, God, fix my spouse. You better change her, make her better, make her nicer, make him taller. It'll never happen. We've both prayed for it. It doesn't happen. You've been praying that they would change. And Jesus is like, I'm working on them on my own time. What if you and I work on you? Over the course of my life, journey as a husband and a Pastor, the Lord's been so clear to me. Stop asking me to fix them. Ask me to fix you so that when I fix them, you fit. Some of y'all have been praying for God to fix somebody, and then he did, and they left. Because you were too stubborn to be fixed yourself. That's not in the notes. That just happened. Now here's what happens. The Bible says that right before these three men, Jesus begins to change. It says that his face changes. I love this, right? And, and, and the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And I wish I could have been in this moment, like I always think I wish I could be in every Bible story. Like, can you imagine what it would have been like to be with the three disciples as Jesus transformed right in front of them? And every time I think about this story, I'm always at a loss for words because I realize that I would have been the only one awake. That's what it says. It says right in the moment, the most important moment in the history of the world, God with us was demonstrating his deity. In this moment, Jesus, smoke, thunder, lightning, glory, power, wonder, diamonds and gold and trumpets and all of the glory of heaven has landed upon the countenance of the man called Jesus. And he's on a mountain covered in clouds that represents the presence of the God, the Godhead. And on one side is Moses, who represents the law. And on the other side, Elijah, the prophets. And there's Jesus, who came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the connector between Old Testament and New Testament. He's perfect and resplendent and king forevermore. And the Bible says the disciples are... <laughs> are we done praying up here or what? I'm always like, wouldn't it be so awesome to be there and see that? And I know me. I'd have been asleep too. I'm going to, just a few minutes, I'm going to divert from the notes and just get this last piece. Jesus brings them up onto the mountain so that he can get, give them the perfect perspective of who he is. He wants to show them, you've said I am Christ. Let me show you. You, you have no idea. 
who I really am. And the Bible says that the three that he brings up fall asleep. And when they wake up, Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And he says, Jesus, it's good that we're here. We should build a house for you. A house? What is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's this, in this moment, he says, this is a great place for me to give you a dwelling here on earth with no separation between you and the Father so that we could keep you with us. And Moses, we love it if you hung around for a little bit longer. And Elijah, dude, stay. Another picture of Peter just like almost getting it, but not getting it. And I want to, I just want to sit for a minute with who's on the mountain with Jesus. I think the, the title for this little nugget says it's about the pursuit and not the person. But we're way off and I'm just going to teach, okay? Check it out. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. <laughs> to become who he's always been. And he chooses to meet on the mountain the two men who embody the various epochs of the faith of Yahweh. Moses, who led the people out of the bondage of slavery, who represents and wrote the law. And Elijah, who brought the people out of the bondage of idolatry and sin and who represents the prophets. Much of the prophecy for the end times indicates that both of them will be present when Jesus returns. They represent the law and the prophecy that Jesus came to fulfill. So when Jesus stands next to Moses, it's the instruction and the demonstration. And when Jesus stands next to Elijah, it's the instruction and the demonstration. And through the lens of our historic faith, we can understand that Moses, we know him, good guy, right? Powerful, wonderful leader. But in Moses' day, he wasn't really known like that. I mean, to be honest with you, we only know of Moses through the lens of one man who led four million people through the desert for 40 years. That's a pretty phenomenal leader, am I right? But if you read your Bible, he was not a phenomenal leader. For lack of a better term, he hated those people. On every other occasion, he prayed to God for them and he said, if you can take them, that'd be great. Or kill them. I don't care. I'm sick of this. He is a grumbler and a complainer. He lacked faith. He also wrote a book where he said he was the most humble man that ever lived, which is the most prideful thing I think you can say, but it's in the Bible, so I have to believe it. Moses is a man of both great power and great flaw. In fact, though he lead the people from slavery through wilderness up unto the promise because of his lack of belief, he didn't even enter the promise. And he's there with Jesus. And then there's Elijah. Elijah's there. And we know Elijah, the man whose miracles changed the course of a nation. His prophecies fulfilled. The words that he spoke had so much power that everybody couldn't wait for him to say something. He's the same one who stood on a mount and challenged all of the priests of Baal and said, you bring your God down here and we'll see who's God. He dared them, even though we're told not to trust or to tempt God. He dared them to prove that their God was real. And when their God wasn't real, he called down fire and flood inside 
succession until there was no other doubt that our God was God. This was a bold man, powerful man, unafraid of even Jezebel. And yet, he was always complaining to God. He, he even threw his own Holy Ghost pity party. I hate it here. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. And he's there. And then there's Peter, <laughs> James, and John. Peter, who just a few sentences earlier said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that confession, I will build my church. But it's the same Peter who moments later is called by Jesus, Satan. When he says, this is what I came to do. And Peter said, no, don't you dare do it. And he said, get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter. After this moment, also has denied Jesus three times. It's the same Peter whose life is marked both by moments of great purity and passion and righteousness and also total abandonment of the faith. There are things that Peter does that you and I would call him apostate. How could you say you believe? There's no proof that you believe. And he's there. John, the boy of the group, who says, Jesus loves me the most whose gospel is written nearly in comparison. If you read the synoptic gospel of John, he writes as if to prove to you that Jesus loved him more than Peter, ongoing basis, like he had to desperately prove it. Peter, John, we don't care, okay? He's also the one that wrote the Revelation. He also writes three epistles that helped to found the doctrine that we believe in understanding both Jesus' deity and his great love in spite of our imperfection, and he's there. And then James, his brother. James, whose primary identifier in the gospel is that he had his mama come to talk to Jesus to say, hey, if you're the Jesus guy, the king, I want my son to have everything that you have. That's what he does. He believes that Jesus is God. And he's like, mama, I want all the things. And he lets his mama come to his job to talk to his boss and ask for a raise. <laughs> and he's there. And they fall asleep. And Jesus picks them to show his glory. Here's what we need to know today. It is not the perfect or the self-righteous. It is not those who seem like they have it all together. It is not the holy of holies and not the ones that can quote every scripture. It's not the people just on the praise team. It's not the deacons or the pastors. It's not the people who say that they're perfect and prove that they're perfect and their life looks like it's all together that Jesus shows to show himself to. This is who he shows himself to. Ready? Anyone who would follow him he doesn't choose good Pharisees or teachers to say, I want to prove to you that I'm God. Come with me. He says, who do I got? And Peter and John are asleep. And James is like, you still haven't asked my mom's question yet. And he goes, cool. You guys want to follow me? And their answer is, yeah. Yeah, I want to follow you. 
I don't know if I'm going to make it. And he's like, don't worry, just come with me. Well, what if I get tired? Then take a nap. And when you awake, I'm going to be right here. And if you'll just keep pressing in, I'll keep showing you more of me. Right now, you only know me as Savior. Wait till you know me as King. Oh, you know me as King. Wait till you know me as Deliverer. Oh, you know me as Deliverer. Wait till you know me as Healer. Oh, you don't know me yet as a comforter, as a strong tower, as faithful or steadfast. Just keep following. I will show you who I am. Last part. You guys can come up. We're just at time. I want to show you this last piece of scripture. It's at the very end. Verse 35. The Bible says, a voice came out of the cloud. This cloud that had surrounded them. It had overshadowed them and it caused them to feel great fear. And the Bible says a voice came out of the cloud and it said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the same phrase that Peter has spoken to Jesus about Jesus. You are the son, the chosen one, the one we're called to follow. He had believed in faith and confessed with his mouth that Jesus was Lord. Those are the requirements to be called his son and daughter. And then, in spite of their failings and their futility, because they would just trust him, Jesus chose to show his might and glory to them. They had believed it. And then they had seen it. And then in this moment, the father comes to confirm it. Now, keep in mind, these are good Jewish boys who know their Torah, the Tanakh. And when the voice of the Father comes down and says, this is my son, they would have heard 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the son of God. There would have been no doubt in that moment that the voice was confirming that Jesus was who they had believed, who they had confessed, and who they had seen. He says, this is my son, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the chosen one, Isaiah 42, the one who's been anointed and promised and is to come. Listen to him, Deuteronomy 18, 15, line by line and precept upon precept, the father comes to confirm their faith, a faith that felt fearful, a faith that felt lost, a faith that felt like, gosh, if we don't get it right, it's going to fall to the ground, but just keep trusting him. And when they follow him, Jesus shows himself and God speaks to their heart and says, you're on the right track. I love you. Ever wonder why some people have a faith that seems bulletproof? It's not because they're special. It's just because they would say, oh, you should see him from here. You should see him like I've seen him through difficult seasons, through pain and through trial. How do you make it? Because he made a way. That's it. That's the teaching today. Every one of us gets a chance to see more of Jesus. Just keep following him. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to worship for just a bit today. And if you're here during this time of worship, it's a perfect, perfect atmosphere for you to talk to Jesus. If you haven't yet seen him in the manner in which you want to see him,
If he hasn't yet demonstrated his power and glory in an area of your life you're still seeking, right now is a moment to say, I will trust you and I will follow you. I want to see you from there. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go! Let's go!